He was a veteran of two wars, a New York cop, a Broadway actor, and the first celebrity trainer. But most importantly, he was the toughest wrestler of the 1880s. Today, we discuss the solid man, William Muldoon. Crazy territory stories, double crosses, and swerves. Pro wrestling history nerds. Holy crap. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being here with us. Uh, my name's Nick Gossert. I'm a wrestling promoter here in Denver, Colorado. But most importantly, or equally importantly, I'm a history nerd. And uh, who the hell are you? My name is Chongo S. Bronson slash... Wait, wait. Oh, no, that's the other show. Uh, my name is Chongo. Yes, yes, yes. Wait, we'll find it. Uh, uh, uh. No, and we're here. I'm a pro wrestling history nerd as well. I'm a, I've been a student of the game since I saw my first sharpshooter, and congratulations to you for being crazy enough to pull this idea off, man. Yeah, I think we're going to be having a lot of fun. We're going to listen, learn, and party. We're going to have a lot of fun talking about history, talking about the past. This show is about the history of professional wrestling, which you already knew from the title, the download, the fact that I probably in person begged you to listen to this goddamn thing. And hopefully it pays off, and I hope to be, uh, you know, be here for quite some time because we're going to have a great time, I think. Because people think of old-time wrestling, and they think of the 80s, the 70s, the 60s. Yes. We're starting in the 60s, but we're starting in the 1860s. <laughs> because the history of pro wrestling, it is rich, it is deep, it is fantastic. And are we going to go chronologically? No, we're not. Are we going to sometimes talk about mixed martial arts or martial arts as well? Hell yeah, because there is a lot of overlap in the world of pro wrestling between MMA and like old-timey martial arts and pro wrestling. It's a Venn diagram of badassness, and I hope everybody's as enthusiastic about it as we are. Yeah, man. I mean, the the history is is full is a full case study in the blending and the different, you know amalgamations and the different formations of the way it's all martial arts daddy it's all the same notes it's how you you know whether you're looking to theatrically apply it or just kick somebody's ass or make some money with it like the the way that the goals of the promoters dictated the manifestation of really it's the same thing you're you're kicking ass you know and there was a lot of ass kicking back in the day <laughs> because you know we're thinking you you're probably thinking pro wrestling you're thinking hey you know what arm drags, clotheslines, bouncing off the ropes, a work. You're thinking of entertainment wrestling. You're thinking there are some Kurt Angles, there are some Brock Lesters. There are plenty of bad, like legitimate badasses who were involved in pro wrestling, but it used to be the opposite, where it was all badasses who occasionally did a little bit of a show business razzle-dazzle. Because despite what, you know, a lot of the modern mythology of wrestling is, People knew it wasn't always on the up and up, even in the 1800s. People knew that there would be worked matches, there would be thrown fights. This was true in boxing, this was true in wrestling, this was in true of lots of sports, because hey, in the pre-internet days, you could be carny as fuck. Oh yeah, I mean, you could be running the same program in seven different towns on a one-week loop, while somebody else, your old tag partner, whoever's running the same program in the next territory over, and you're and you're printing money and getting away with it, man, is 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 a beautiful time to be alive. I imagine exactly. And you know, over the course of the show, um, you know, we're gonna jump around a lot. We're not starting at a certain point and going chronologically to the present day. We're gonna jump around with what interests us, and hopefully, you join us on our journey to because. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot to learn. And good God, is it a bunch of crazy fucking stories. Yeah, nothing is crazier in my experience that I've ever come across than the, the untold true stories of, of pro wrestling and how these maniacs interact. I mean, you think the stuff that's written about pro wrestling is the craziest stuff. It's not, you couldn't even write this stuff. It's, it's unreal. And that's, it's the most interesting stuff in the world. I mean, I hate history. I hate school, but my God, I have I have soaked up every bit of wrestling knowledge my entire life because it's just fascinating. And speaking of history, speaking of storytelling, um, so much of pro wrestling history is a combination of finding old articles and word of mouth stories because back in the day, you know, nobody was writing their, very few people wrote their autobiographies and showed that peek behind the curtain. So sometimes if you are also a history nerd, you might hear a story we tell and go, that's not the way I heard it. Well, guess what? 
you probably didn't. You might have heard it this way. You might have heard it that way. I may be completely wrong every now and then. Um, but guess what? That's the magic of myth. Uh, the different versions of it. Because the truth disappears as soon as the lights go on. Yeah, and we're piecing together artifacts to sort of like give a reasonable approximation of what we think probably transpired with some of this stuff. I mean, you guys are going to get to see like what we're the, the, the puzzle pieces that we are trying to, to fit together. It's pretty ridiculous. Yep. And that's why we're going to kick things off because right now we're going to talk about a guy where you're going to hear this guy's life story and go, there is no goddamn way somebody did all of that in one lifetime. How did somebody do all these crazy things, be in all these crazy places in 81 short years? But that is the case of the solid man, William Muldoon. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't pitch this guy's life as a reality TV show because it would come off as unbelievable. It's just too, this guy is, this guy is like the most interesting man in the world, man. Exactly. And, you know, let's, let's get right into this guy. Yeah, William Muldoon was born May 25th, 1852 in Allegheny County, New York. And even as a kid, he was just this super freak athlete. Um, he was known for his feats of strength, for wrestling, for boxing, and for caber tossing. And if you don't know what caber tossing is, do you know what caber tossing is? Yeah, it's where you like throw a telephone pole, basically. Right? Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's that giant log. You'll see it on like ESPN 14 and Espanol uh, at three in the morning where a giant man carries a, you know, 20 foot long pole on his palms and throws it as far as he can because there was no internet, there was no TV, there wasn't anything to do but be strong and crazy in the mid 1800s. Um, and then things got crazier in, in, in an entirely different way when at the age of 12, yes, you heard me right, at the age of 12, he joined the 6th Cavalry Division to be the drummer boy for the Union Army during the Civil War. Yeah, so he got he got so comfortable with combat that he wouldn't even break his rhythm while cannonball shells and, and muskets are being fired everywhere around him. And that's at 12 years old. Talk about a worker, man. Yeah, he's out there, you know, trying to keep the rhythm during a march while the, because, yeah. you know, he only really saw one major battle, which was at uh, the Battle of uh, Opaquan. I probably mispronounced that, but I don't care. Um, and, but he saw actual combat being 12 years yeah, old. Only beating one battle in combat as a 12 year old in the Civil War. What, I mean, what? I mean, yeah, and, and you know, and then he, <laughs> and then the, you know, after the Civil War, they went out to for you know to fight the historically uh, unfortunate and unfortunately named Indian Wars, um, and this is also where he started honing his skills as a wrestler because in the Union camps, once again, not a whole lot to do, so wrestling was the de facto way to pass time. So at the age of twelve, he is learning to wrestle grown Union Army men. Yeah, and then, and then, like you said, when he when he goes across. Didn't he go to like France and the French Foreign Legion or whatever it was to just fight more wars? Yeah, that's, or... and that's the crazy thing. At the age of 18, um, you know, having seen the Civil War, having gone out west to take part in the Indian Wars, he went, you know what? I could use a little more war. So he, yeah, right. so he got on a boat and went to France and volunteered to join the French Army during the Franco-Prussian War. Um, and, if you don't know what that war is, it was mostly a war between France and the various states of what is now Germany. It is so complicated that I'm not even going to go into any further details. You know how Google works, look it up. If you're fascinated by wars, it's all right there. But the important thing is that Muldoon learned the art of Greco-Roman wrestling while being with the French army for a few years during the war. Um, Greco-Roman wrestling was really an 18th century invention. Uh, they just kind of tried to tie it to the history of the Greek Olympics yeah. with the name. Um, but it was a modern invention and had very specific rules. Uh, you want to kind of explain that a little bit? Yeah, essentially it's a it's a style of positional based wrestling that so you're looking to take your opponent down and control position for, for victory as opposed to like a submission style. But the thing that sets it apart is it's all upper body locks. There's no legs, you can't shoot below the waist, you can't do foot sweeps, you can't do trips. There's not a gi like in a judo or, or a sambo or a different, you know, different non-American style grappling art. So it, it really made for a unique, it's, it's really something that is shown to be quite useful in modern day MMA because of the ability to control your opponent in the clinch without risking, you know, changing levels and getting down on somebody's leg. So it's a really, really dominant style and 
man, this guy, he came along at the right time for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, if you ever want to see like how good is Greco-Roman wrestling in a real fight, YouTube Randy Couture and you will find out. It is, yeah, exactly. it is an upper body strength based, a lot of leverage, a lot of yeah. slow positioning. It's honestly like not the most exciting pure wrestling style to watch, but good God does a lot go into it. And this guy came back to the States being fantastic at it. Um, and, you know, when you talk about Greco-Roman wrestling, we're also going to talk about, you know, catch as catch can or collar and elbow or Cornish or there's so many different forms of wrestling because wrestling is a folk combat art and every culture has its own version of it. And, you know, probably in a couple episodes, we'll spend some time talking about all these because it's fascinating to find out how a person in Mongolia wrestles versus a person in Ireland wrestles and you see the similarities because that's the thing with the human body. Unless you have a third leg or a tail or tentacles, everything bends the only one way uh, universally across the world. And, you know, people figure out a way to bend people the wrong way to make them say, uh, no, thank you. I am done. You win this conversation. I will be going home. I apologize. Yeah. And it's it really does almost it, it almost manifests like a regional dialect, the different sub genres of grappling that that grow from the different, you know, different places all throughout the world. I mean, there's there's grappling hubs in Africa, in uh, all over the Middle East. There's different rules in India. They have they have almost like the sumo hybrid stuff. It's really fascinating. But Chongo digresses. Yeah, because yes. well, like I said, we could talk about that yeah, all day we, and sometime soon we will and hopefully you come with us on that journey. But for speaking of journeys, let's get back to William Muldoon's where he came back to the United States after the Franco-Prussian War and a master of Greco-Roman wrestling, standing six six feet, weighing around 200 pounds for most of his career. And I know what you're saying is like six foot, 200 pounds, that's like a light heavyweight at this point, maybe even a middleweight. But back in the 18, late 1800s, yeah. that was a big goddamn that's a big person. Boy. Yeah, that's a heavyweight for sure back in, back in the day. And back in New York, he you know made a good connection with a former New York senator and bare knuckle boxer, John Morrissey. Uh, and Morrissey was connected to Tammany Hall. If you have never heard Tammany Hall, or maybe you do because you saw you know, Gangs of New York and heard it referenced, Tammany Hall was a New York political uh, brotherhood, which was so blatantly corrupt, it makes the Trump administration look quaint and sneaky. Um, but through that connection, he got a job as a police officer in New York City. So he's, a, a, you know, during that whole Gangs of New York era that you, know, you might have seen in the Scorsese film, he was this, he was the police enforcer. When like somebody, they needed to like go in and seriously crack some heads, he was the cop they brought in to go in and just, you know, manhandle the enforcers for the, uh, for the, for the crime families, for the, for the gangs. He was just the toughest son of a bitch in the New York Police Department in the mid to late 1800s, which is quite the uh, accomplishment if you ask me. Yeah, it's terrifying. And I just had the thought right now, like, you remember on the old cartoons how it'd be like, after a Muldoon, get a Muldoon or whatever. You'd, you remember that? It would be like the cops going after the guy. I wonder if that's like an archetype that was transitioned over, man. It is entirely possible um, because he was, even in those days, obsessed with physical fitness, um, or as they called it in those days, physical culture. Um, weightlifting really didn't get popular in sports until you know, after World War II, um, during the Cold War, the Soviet uh, athletes started like pumping iron left and right and becoming super athletes. I'm sure there were no uh, super vitamins to go along with that re regiment, but it did, you know, bring weightlifting more into mainstream athletics. Um, back in those days, it was just, oh, the circus freaks are the ones who lift weights. You know, they're giant muscle men and that's all they do. Um, however, there was, um, a group called the Turners, the Turners of Germany. Uh, Jan Turner created an organization that used weightlifting, gymnastics, bike riding to build the characters of young men, sort of like an athletic Boy Scouts organization. And in the political instability of Germany in the late 1800s, they came to the United States and started opening up gyms all over the place. That's, yeah, that's a really, uh, I mean, I'm a, 
I didn't realize that they had like basically like circus factories. That's a pretty awesome kind of gym. I don't know why we don't have those available today. They got all these stupid CrossFit things everywhere. I want to go. Can we? Is this thing still a thing? Can we go to like a circus factory? I wish because it, it does. It feels very much like a like an old timey CrossFit thing. Tell where, her, like learn a unicycle while you juggle. Yeah, where yeah, know. where it's like oh, we're gonna ride our bicycles, uh, you know, for for fourteen miles while pumping dumbbells, and then we're gonna do gymnastics and then box. It's like. I feel like there's a market for that. If you think you'd sign up, you know, t- tweet at us. Maybe we'll have a side business going by uh, by by next year. Yes, I think that's something we venture worth worth further pursuit. Yeah. And at this time, uh, Muldoon really, you know, he was a cop by day, wrestler sometimes by day, but definitely by night, where he would get involved in often illegal. Um, underground wrestling competitions and saloons behind venues um, where it would just be like a, you know, it was like fight club, but with betting. And he was cleaning house. So he really started putting his toe into actual professional wrestling. And when I use professional wrestling in this term, I do mean it as a professional athlete in a legitimate sport. Yeah, I mean, professional wrestling and boxing pretty much started out in the same place. The, the way they evolved and, and grew and, and the way that the, the, the fighters were presented and managed differed based on the, the, the ways that it was best for that sport. But at that time, you know, you would have the, the guys that would be able to legitimately kick the crap out of anybody that was in the audience. And, and then they could take it easy and work with each other when needed be. They already knew the pecking order and it's more of like an established thing. It was. It was very much more uh, a Wild West kind of thing. And you had to be, if you were going to be a pro wrestler, you had to be ready to be able to beat every guy in the room. As you know, in the future, we'll talk about uh, touring carnival and theater shows where that was a big part of it. But that's a talk for another day. Um, Right now, we're going to look at this man, William Muldoon, and how he became the Greco-Roman world champion. And it was not an easy road. Um, In 1878, he became the New York City police wrestling champ. Which sounds like a weird thing, but like the unions of the police departments in New York had their own, you know, wrestling competitions. So he became the New York City police wrestling champ by defeating fellow officer John Quigley. Two straight falls. And I have just now introduced a term, two falls. How would you uh, phrase this? Essentially, it's like it's like a playoff series, right? So it'd be like two out of three. One fall would be the first, you know, the first the first loss and it's over two out of three usually you're not going to go more than that or you might have a you know there could falls could falls count anywhere you could have an iron man match where it's the number of falls completed in 60 minutes so a fall is pretty much a pin submission count out or disqualification exactly so falls it's like you know it's best two out of three best three out of five i've even read about you know the like a, a best of seven series which sounds exhausting and insane but you know we'll talk about those when we need to talk about them um a lot of it is traced back to the original greek wrestling of the olympics where a winner was declared after scoring three points so it's once again greco roman wrestling trying to tie things back to a point in history for the sake of legitimacy awesome for them Awesome for the audience. So long, well, sometimes awesome for the audience because good Lord do some of these matches take some time, uh, you know, back in these days. Um, But yeah, so he defeated his fellow officer, John Quigley, two straight falls, um, and both men were big. These were 200 plus pound men in, you know, the late 1800s, so they were giants. And according to the Cincinnati Daily Star, during the second fall, Muldoon secured a body lock around Quigley, lifted him up over his head, held him for a few seconds before slamming him so hard that the audience could feel it through the floor. And if you're picturing, you know, your WWE style match where boom, the ring, you know, reverberates and the ropes shake. Think again. Matches were not in rings. They were seldom even on platforms. It was usually on the hardwood floor or maybe if they had the budget, they'd put down a carpet. Yeah, I mean, they would they would happen in ballrooms. They would happen on docks. Yeah, yeah you're typ- you were lucky typically back then if you were able to end up on a non, you know, brutal surface. Wood was pretty, you you were pretty good if you were on wood back then, whether that was inside a building or on docks. But yeah, there were no, especially for the unsanctioned stuff. Oh yeah, it's like, I mean, if you know, uh, most people have, you know, as a kid would rough house with their friends. Everybody has a memory of either themselves or somebody else doing it, or they hit their head so hard they have no memory right. of 
you know, roughhousing with some friends, falling and hitting your head on like the hard floor or the so- or the concrete sidewalk. And it's like, oh, well, all I could really do is like, you know, try to figure out how to pull or push a door for a couple of days before I was back to normal. That would be the normal in wrestling. And you would sometimes have to wrestle for another two hours after that. So we keep saying this, it was a different time back then. Like, I don't want to say they were tougher, but they were fucking tougher because they had no other options. A man is as tough as he is required to be. And these men were required to be insanely tough. Um, yeah, these, I mean, you're talking about a different, a different level of just grit that it takes to get through the day-to-day life, let alone to be considered the toughest guy in the room. Pick up the, the next biggest, meanest cop in all of New York and slam him on the concrete so hard you basically dunk his face on the ground. I mean, these, and these, they probably had a beer afterwards. You know, he's like, oh, oh it was a good takedown, buddy. You know? a, a beer that was probably 40% alcohol and would be considered poison by the uh, FDA today. <laughs> um, but yeah, so he was the police champion. And at that point, he was like just all fired up career wise. He wanted to take on anyone. Well, almost anyone. Um, He knew he wasn't seasoned enough to take on a couple of wrestlers, like Australian wrestler Dr. William Miller. I'm not sure what his doctorate was in. Uh, Maybe it was a send-away program. I am not certain. Um, But more importantly, the uh, then Greco-Roman world champion from France, uh, Thibault uh, Bauer. Um, But he was, you know, he was chomping at the bit to take on bigger names, but the police department wanted him to remember he was a cop first and a wrestler second. And that conversation didn't always go smoothly. Um, you know, and, and he did grow. He, he, you know, he did finally meet Dr. Miller in 1979 during a wrestling tournament in New York. It was, they had big annual wrestling tournaments uh, in New York City. And Miller pinned him, uh, but, uh, you know, it wasn't a title match for his police belt or cup or whatever the heck he is. That is a fun thing we're finding is the research uh is sometimes a little weird trying to find details in these old timey articles. Like we were talking earlier, where I read a description of a match from you know, from the Cincinnati paper in you know the 1800s, saying, "And he used a leg entanglement to secure a throw." Yeah, it's, you're you're trying to decipher like just it's it's half a different language, and it's a it's a it's a layman's description of something that he doesn't understand what he's looking at at best. Exactly. Um, but, you know, like you said, it's like these these matches were clearly very big, very important, and they were very well covered by the press. And if you were thinking, why were papers half a, you know, half a continent away covering professional wrestling in New York City? Because not a lot was going on. There were no movies. There were no, you know, there was Baseball no internet. Baseball wasn't a thing. Yeah, there Basketball was, wasn't Yeah, a thing. football was barely a thing. Like all yeah. these things, like, so, so that individual sporting um, games and comp- competitions, like people would wait a week, you know, to read the paper to find out who won a wrestling match in Madison Square Garden. Yeah. You know why? Because when you're, and this isn't, you know, denigrating rural life but like when you're sitting around on your porch in the at your farm in the middle of goddamn nowhere it's a little more exciting than waiting for the mule to shit well i mean mail was social media it was it was all media it was your it was your way of getting information from outside of your farm unless you left to go find out or you heard it from somebody else i mean that was getting the mail back then was probably as exciting as you know Far more exciting than any of the stuff we have because we have such an abundance of it. But man, yeah, it, it made everything so much more impactful. Exactly, and um, and nothing was more impactful for the day than the uh, January nineteenth, eighteen eighty match where you William Muldoon, the Solid Man, the way he got that nickname because he was just built like a fucking action figure. He looked like a He-Man uh, figure. And so, and a journalist said, there goes a solid man, because that was an old-timey term for, he was built yeah. like a motherfucker. Um, and in, on, on, on a Tuesday, hey, wrestling promoters, you can draw on a Tuesday. Little known fact. Uh, January, Tuesday, January 19th, 1880, in Madison Square Gardens, Muldoon, age 27, entering his athletic prime, finally was able to take on the Greco-Roman world champion, Tebold Bauer. Um, and the athletic commission, the police department, the promoter, all were very worried about making sure this was a legitimate contest and looked like a legitimate contest so people wouldn't talk shit because 
once again, not everything was on the up and up. So it could PR on a big match, could go straight to shit if people thought it was a fix. So they fought about who would be the referee. And in the end, the, prom the promoter and the city won out. The police um, department wanted a cop for the... Uh, uh, <laughs> And everybody knows you can trust a New York City cop to be a, a fair shake and an yeah. honest man, right? Yeah, that's exactly right? the person I want to know is is responsible for, for ending a fight at the correct time. Yeah. Um, so in the end, it was a man named Henry Hill. And no, not the Goodfellas guy. Uh, Henry Hill, uh, he was very well known in prize fighting because he owned a saloon where illegal prize fights would happen in the back every single night, including William Muldoon's numerous early matches. <laughs> so clearly this is the type of up and up, you know, yes. honest yes. man you want refereeing a world title match. Down it was, the middle. It was a different day. Yeah. Um, and this took place in front of, I've seen different numbers. I've seen anywhere from two to 4,000. But either way, that's a lot of people coming out to watch Greco-Roman wrestling. Oh, yeah. Because once again, like if as we've discussed, if you've watched Olympics and you've seen Greco-Roman wrestling, it to us is not the most thrilling thing because you know what we can watch any com we have ufc we can watch pancreas we can watch j wrestling of every flavor but hey back in those days options were a little limited so everybody loved it everybody came out to watch a two out of three match between Theobald bauer the world champion and this hot up-and-comer william muldoon um it was a bit of a size difference. We use the term heavyweight champion the same way pro wrestlers today use a heavyweight champion, where it's like, Rey Mysterio's the heavyweight champion? That's a, that's an interesting yeah. thing. He weighs he weighs four pounds. Yeah, right, it's, it's more contingent, yeah. The, the, the fast and loose with the, the weight classes is another thing that wrestling has really differentiated itself from as it's gone more like works. But yeah, back then, I mean, what was the size difference in this? This was pretty serious. Um, it was about a 25 pound weight difference. Yeah. So Bauer was giving up a couple inches and 20 to 25 pounds uh, in, in, in we're, and we're not talking like flab, we're not talking yeah. uh, he's, he had to be at a bubble butt, we're talking muscle. We're talking he's a, he's a you know, 12% larger man. And, and that, that's at least three, four weight classes in like Olympic competition to give you guys an idea of what how that size difference would translate to actual competition today. Yeah, like for example, if, if anybody out there has boxed, wrestled, kickboxed, jiu-jitsu, judo, sambo, any of these things, if you heard me say it was a world title match with a 20 to 25 pound uh, weight difference, you probably went, oh my fucking God. And if you didn't, ask somebody who you know who does those things so you can hear them say it. Because even like a 10 pound weight difference is significant. Yeah, I mean, it, at the end of the day, you're bringing superior physics to the table, bigger, stronger. You, you have more mass behind what you're doing, and it's it, it's ultimately size is an advantage in a fight. And and we have weight classes for a reason. And on top of that, uh, Muldoon knew how to use his size and strength. Throughout the first fall, um, he used his weight to sandbag ever. He pretty much played defense yeah. to wear out his smaller opponent. He would he would get they would work in a tie up and he would just just sandbag everything Bauer tried to do working very little offense of his own, just letting the smaller man wear himself out trying to carry around this bigger guy, um, and that that'll do it. Um, yeah, it, that's a sound strategy in my book. The longer you you drag that out, the more you make that guy carry that additional weight, and you you actively approach your strategy of how you're grappling with him in a way to make yourself heavy and to do that, that's a that's a brilliant strategy and I don't fault him one bit for it. And this is the, the only little, like pretty much everybody who saw this match says this was a completely legit match. It was, the stakes were too high, a lot of reputation on the line career-wise. Um, but the only pe person and the only thing I found where anybody suggested it might not have been a, a legit contest was from the New York Sun. Um, in the first fall, uh, Bauer, uh, you know, had a waist lock, turned into a back body lock, couldn't do much with it because of, you know, Muldoon sandbagging it, just kind of just letting his weight uh, do, the, do the fight and forum. He managed to secure a pretty tight headlock and there proof I'm doing air quotes with my fingers it's an audio me you know, medium so you can't see was saying that it was because of the lack of redness on his face after being in a headlock for a couple of minutes was proof it was a fake fight wow <laughs> <laughs> brought to you by the same doctors that tell you to do some cocaine about the ghosts in your blood
Yeah, yeah. The uh, the the idea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was like the 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 armchair quarterbacks of the world have always been obnoxious yeah. and no difference back in the day. It's like, oh, he was in a headlock and he wasn't turning bright purple, which just means, you know, the forearm wasn't on the carotid artery or the windpipe. It was just around his head. Been there plenty of times myself. I don't think I turned uh, purple or blue or plaid or anything like that. But uh, hey, you know, it's anybody, you know, people are always looking for an excuse to say this was not a real fight. Um, and that was theirs. But, you know, Muldoon finally pinned Bauer for the first fall at 52 minutes. And yes, you heard that right. The first round of this Greco-Roman wrestling uh, two out of three falls was 52 minutes. There were no time limits back in these days. It was like, you know, like the early UFCs, but they would go all day because people knew to use their conditioning. And, you know, like it's not, you know, Greco-Roman is not like a high paced um, it's a war of attrition. Exactly. So, you know, after 52 minutes, we have the first pin, and they retire to take a 20-minute break between, you know, between rounds. For those of us who are used to watching, you know, just a, you know, a, a brief couple of minutes between rounds, that sounds insane. But this is when, like, the hot dog vendors would come out, and people trying to sell trinkets and programs. Uh, one of the uh, Muldoon's uh, uh, training partners and cornermen offered to wrestle anyone in the audience. Like yeah. for for twenty bucks, it was just it was just a carnival of insanity. And also, that that is one way you can look at it. As far as that's a long time between rounds, but the other way to look at it is that's twenty minutes between fights, between separate matches, because oh, yeah. each fall is essentially a new match. So if you're like at a jiu-jitsu tournament or an amateur wrestling tournament, twenty minutes between matches, that's that's not. I I've had a lot less, but I've oftentimes had a lot more. Oh yeah, I mean it's it it could be like the resting period can be too much, too little, just right. Yeah. Um I once in a jiu-jitsu tournament myself, I had a like I think it was like 15 60 minutes 16 minutes uh just war with this guy and I finally managed to uh, to you know to catch his arm with a uh, with a kimura and I literally walked back trying not to throw up from exhaustion. Yeah. Uh, my first blue belt competition slugged down a bunch of water and heard my name called immediately because I was the last bracket. So I was, you know, yeah, popping back uh, up and I went out and got tapped in like 90 seconds to a fucking canteen <laughs> car because yeah. I had nothing. So they would want to make sure the, the wrestlers had as much, you know, as much recovery time as possible. I don't know how you properly recover from a 52 minute wrestling match to do it, po- to it possibly two more times, but somehow they did. Um, but during the second fall, uh, they go back out there. Bauer finally got a good back, uh, you know, waist lock around him and turned it into a back suplex. If you're a wrestling fan, you know what we're talking about. A good old fashioned German suplex. But he, you know, he, he, he held it you know, pretty tight and Muldoon hit his head on the uh, floor. Once again, yeah. carpet on hardwood that I almost flicked the mic, but I didn't know what that would sound like. Uh, that just like hard hit, oh, yeah. and I, I can't even imagine the concussion. Like that, if that happened to me, I wouldn't like. I, I'd just be like, "Oh, I woke up and I was 50." Interesting. Yeah, I mean, as somebody that, without getting in too much tr- trouble, has maybe or maybe not had a little bit of experience with head injuries such as this. Um, honestly, the, the truth is, the head stuff doesn't hurt. That's a terrible thing yeah, to okay. say, but like it doesn't hurt, but it it'll it'll hurt you. But but in the moment, it's such a it's like it's like a you feel what it must feel like for a speaker to blow out. Yeah, <laughs> that's what it feels like in your head, your ears, and your senses. It's like it sends a shock through your nervous system. You bang, and then it's like it's so extreme that you almost don't even register what it did, and you're just like, okay. Yeah. And then about twenty minutes later. You, everything looks like water. Yeah, and then the next day when you're going home, you go walk, you walk right past your house without uh, going up to the door. Uh, no, I mean, that's not a personal experience. Uh, but from that suplex, it knocked him stupid, and uh, Bauer was able to secure the fall. Again, the second round, the second fall, almost 30 minutes. So, I mean, these guys have been wrestling for a feature-length movie. Because the, they both came out, they were both exhausted. Um, Muldoon, I, th- I assume from the headshot, assumed, or I'm sorry, I assume that uh, Bauer thought Muldoon was done yeah. based on the headshot and just probably being groggy. So he came out and tried fucking around and started going for more of like trying to grab the wrists, more like a freestyle match, like you're trying to protect your legs. And uh, 
you know, Muldoon, who still had his wits about him, caught him with a headlock, caught him with a throw, put both shoulders down inside of three minutes, and now is the Greco-Roman world champion and won it in front of 3,000 people going absolutely bananas. Well, that is that is a testament, first and foremost, to the power of muscle memory, <laughs> right? It, it just shows you that you gave that guy an opportunity. He's operating on instinct, and his instinct was able to get the job done because the guy didn't finish the job, man. You got to finish the job, especially when the guy's 25 pounds bigger than you. Well, dude, I mean, and and just as like a competitive guy and a fighter, it's like if you crack my head, I'm, you know, I'm going to get that receipt, you know. So you got to, he, he approached that third round with the, the absolute wrong mentality. Exactly. And, but he was the champ. He had the title. He was top of the gosh darn world. The police department not too happy that one of their you know premier de- uh, premier detectives is now the world champion because that takes a little bit of time and effort. That would be some drama that would haunt him for a little bit in his career because right out of the gate, his first title defense was an even bigger challenge than winning the damn thing. He had to go up against a man named Clarence Whistler, and Whistler will doubtlessly be the subject of an, ep- an episode onto himself sometime in the near future because he was tough, he was crazy, yeah. he was dangerous. He was, uh, you know, he, he he's fascinating, and he was a fantastic catch-as-catch-can wrestler. Uh, how would you describe catch-as-catch-can wrestling? Um, it is It is basically the art of the submission and the catch as in you could catch a submission hold out of anywhere that it, it, it's it has a similar sort of end game to jiu-jitsu but as much more much less of a tactical breakdown of how to get there and it just it allows for a high level of creativity and and improvisation and it's a really really brutal style i mean guys like josh burnett obviously you know um matt matt hume <laughs> Obviously, the the, the 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 talk about the concussion is bringing out old memories, old chap. Yeah, and it's you know it was primarily a style that came out of Lancaster, England. And as we kind of progress through this and the shows, we're going to talk about a lot of different styles that are still very similar that you find in the United Kingdom. And it's insane that you'll look at this area the size of you know like a, a, a bigger state in the United States that spawned all these different wrestling styles because the cultures were so segregated for a long time. And Clarence Whistler, despite being an American, became a dangerous master of catches, catch can submission wrestling. The two men first met in January of 1881. Uh, Whistler was 30 pounds lighter than Mildoon, but he had a reputation to be deceptively strong for his size. And they faced off at the Terrace Gardens where they wrestled for, wait for this, seven hours for a draw. Oh my God. Well, that is, that just sounds awful all the way around. Like, uh, first of all, I want to know with, now this was for the Greco title, right? So mm-hmm. I'm assuming it's by Greco rules. Exactly. That's the thing. It's like Clarence Whistler isn't even fighting in the rules that he is, that he's specializing in. Yeah. And he's got a weight disadvantage. And, and in, in the Greco style specifically, a weight disadvantage is even more amplified because you can't use your additional limbs. A lot of the other, th- you know, it restricts a lot of the options. So in that format, he's, he's got a pretty unbeatable strategy right here. He's bigger and stronger. He's just basically making guys carry his weight until they tire out. But seven hours, man, that just tells you the superior skill of Clarence Whistler. Absolutely. So they fought, they wrestled for seven straight hours in front of thousands of people. Thousands of people watched two men wrestle for seven hours without a conclusive, um, you know, without a conclusive finish. And there, I, I did find a couple different ways where it's like they finally just, they had a time limit. They had a certain hour for New York. Uh, but the, I, I don't know if this is true, but it's the ending I liked best with one version saying that the building owner just turned off the lights and told everyone to leave. Yeah, I, I like that finish. Yeah. I don't know if that's true or not, but I love that one. I, I, I if it's not true, I wish it were. Um, yeah, that, that's not. I, I'm gonna go with that finish as well. That sounds amazing. And there was some bad blood between them after this because, according to Muldoon, Whistler put ammonia in his hair to burn his eyes during uh, lockups. Both made accusations of the other one having like sharpened their fingernails to scratch each other. However. As even athletes in that day were, men who knew the value of a dollar, they realized they had a certain chemistry and uh, had a very complicated rivalry and business uh, um, arrangements. Because soon after this match, he they ended up going on theater and carnival tours together. Um, we'll get to that here in a minute. But um, first, he took on collar and elbow wrestling champion uh, John McMahon. Um, collar and elbow 
again, very similar to catch as catch can, but they would wear, it's an Irish style, and they would wear um, like a, a strong jacket, almost like a judo or, you know, jujitsu gi. So hence the term collar and elbow. So in a tie up, that's where you knew where to grab them. Um, they didn't wear the, the tops during this match, but on March 22nd, 1881, uh, they went in with this very strange set of rules. Um, the first fall would be Greco-Roman rules. The second would be um, catch as catch can. And the third being Cornish wrestling. Have you ever heard of Cornish wrestling? Um, I, I know the finish. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, um, so Cornish wrestling was very similar to uh, the collar and elbow style where you wore the jacket, um, but you could not throw, or you could only do throws while holding the gi. You couldn't grab the arm, you couldn't grab the leg, you couldn't grab body, body locks. It was all leverage from, uh, from throwing from the, uh, the jacket, like, kind of like a judo gi. Wow. So it was very, it's very interesting. I watched them on YouTube. It's, if you're a grappling nerd, it is, yeah. it is interesting. Um, I mean, they're literally mixing the martial arts at this time. This yeah, is and, and this is something I, I saw, I see a lot is these matches, you know, if it was like too, too dominant of a champion uh, or guys who have fought 50 times, they would do these weird like round by round rules. It made me think of this uh, karate uh, tournament I saw when I was, it was, I don't know, when I was in high school, where the first round was like Enchin karate rules, second round kickboxing, third grappling. And I'm like, what a weird way to layer things together. But you know, if it sells tickets, it sells tickets. Um, so John McMahon was 40 years old. So he was a, he had a decade and um, was much on Muldoon. It was also much smaller than him. And of course, you know, Muldoon won the Greco-Roman round. McMahon won the uh, collar and elbow, catches catch can style one. And then it came to the third round with the Cornish wrestling. And Muldoon put on his jacket and he said it was too tight. He said he, you know, they said they had the wrong size. Um, he said he didn't want to wear it. They didn't have a different size. It was a whole thing. And in the end, he said, you know what, fuck it. I'm not, uh, I'm not doing this match. And they just kind of agreed to call it a draw. And both men walked away with a one versus one, uh, you know, uh, record versus each other with those rounds. This is where my carny senses are a little bit tingling, where I wonder if that was the prearranged plan so both men could walk away looking good, where I won Greco-Roman, you win the submission style. We're gonna have a third decisive one, but because of a weird technicality, it doesn't happen. So it's a draw, we both can say we won. Totally, you gotta get to Broadway to keep, keep both guys over, you know what I mean? And both guys got to stay over in their style. Right, and although now knowing what we know, the excuse of the gi being too small is not one you can go with because that is an advantage, sir. <laughs> we would have been better off with the small gi. And this is something when we start saying the idea of a worked match, a fixed fight in wrestling, a lot of times, you know, you would see l legitimate competition for two of the rounds. And sometimes, you know, somebody would like do a little bit of a fix in the middle one. So it would be like, it would go the full two out of three, you know, two out of three, go the full three rounds so that they can, you know, build on that for a bigger show. Or, you know, there were wrestlers like uh, Evan Strangler Lewis, uh, who we'll definitely be talking about in the future, who was well known for, so long as a wrestler respected him and treated him uh, correctly, he would give a local champion a uh, the second round just to make him look good in front of his friends and family. Yeah, just, just a little something, something. Yeah, and if you were disrespectful, well, your night got a lot shorter and a lot harder. Um, <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't the norm, you know. It was, but it's it, it was there. Um, and you know, you would think maybe this led to a bigger match down the road, but it didn't. Um, McMahon wrestled for another decade and retired at the age of 50 in 1891. They never met again. Unfortunately, there was never a rematch. So Muldoon, he spent the majority of the next two years not defending his title. He was touring with theatric uh, shows, carnival shows, doing exhibition matches, bits of showbiz weirdness. One of his favorite money-making bits was was he would he would put on gladiator a gladiator costume and paint himself to look like a statue and pose for photos. Whoa! Because once again, there were limited options for entertainment in the late 1800s. Um, but he would be doing these carnival shows. It was just a lot of times, you know, two friendly wrestlers, him and Whistler, did it a lot, where they would be showing off the technique of wrestling 
to impress the crowd. So they would work these prearranged worked matches, much like we see in wrestling today, but mostly just to do it as a demonstration for why you should come watch legitimate wrestling. Boxers did the same, which knowing what we know now about CTE was a terrible goddamn idea. But, yeah. <laughs> Serious. Yeah. I mean, I also want to like put this thought out there that when you talk about just black and white, like works and shoots, right? Like competition versus like predetermined or however people want to categorize it in their head. There is infinite gray area from, you know, a guy, you could talk about like a guy, like say a GSP carrying somebody for a longer fight just to make it more entertaining and make sure people get their money's worth. That's, you know, to a degree that's working because he knows he's got the skill to, to, play with his food a little bit to somebody throwing a, a round or throwing a finish, you know, throwing a fight in boxing, MMA. Um, sometimes with uh, different stuff, I know in Japan, they would do like in Pancrase where only one guy knew it was a work. You know? <laughs> only the guy losing didn't oh, know it was yeah, a real fight. Yeah, we, uh, the, the story goes that uh, Masakatsu Funaki, an amazing grappler, uh, knew that it was best to put the title on you know, then up-and-comer Boss Rutan, knowing that would give him a more international uh, audience. Boss Rutan didn't know that uh, he was winning that night. Yeah. So Funaki went out and took the beating of a goddamn lifetime yeah, yeah. to make Boss Rutan champion unbeknownst to Boss. Yeah, Boss was the only guy that didn't know the fix was in. So he ended up beating the hell. I mean, that's, hey man, he, he came to win that night one way or the other, you know? And yeah, so it's, like I said, he, you know, Wrestling was a different thing, different audience, different business structure. And he spent, you know, most of these two years doing exhibition matches, just showing off the art of wrestling. And he also became an accomplished stage performer. So over, you know, over a hundred years before The Rock really crossed over into feature film, he was crossing over into, uh, into theater. Uh, in fact, in 1883, he starred in a Broadway production of Shakespeare's As You Like It, sharing the bill with former boxer turned actor Maurice Barrymore, patriarch of the Barrymore acting family, father of John, if you, you know, watch old Dracula movies, Lionel, Ethel, and great-grandfather of Drew Barrymore. And in 1887, he appeared in a production of Spartacus. So this was a guy who knew, get your fingers in as many pies as possible, because you never know where your career is going to go. And that's something that... Totally. Because here's the sad story, uh, or sad situation. As we see today, as we saw back then, most professional athletes don't know how to handle their money. They don't think of the future. They just party, 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 because they think they're going to be on top forever, and then find themselves broken down, 50 years old, bad body, 20 bucks in their pocket, injuring themselves even more by trying to continue to wrestle. And almost out of the gate, this man, William Muldoon, knew better. That's why he started putting together his you know, physical fitness business, because he, he essentially wanted to be a physical fitness uh, trainer to the stars, to the rich. He, he had a business plan very early on, and as we'll see, it, it really paid off. Um, and he also had a, just a, he also, you know, another reason he was so big is he had a great relationship with the press. He'd always do interviews and there was hardly a week that would go by without a major newspaper printing articles about him. Um, and, you know, during these theater tours, he, you know, he would also often do these exhibitions with Clarice Whistler. Um, but Whistler was a little difficult to work with. Uh, much like me in most cases. Um, he was working an exhibition against a French wrestler and Muldoon was refereeing. Whistler was shit-faced. He was so drunk, he, like, he was just a disaster. But even while drunk, he was a dangerous wrestler. And he was, in, the French wrestler pissed off Whistler and nobody, I don't really, couldn't find any details on what happened, but Whistler just started beating the shit out of him, like cranking holds really hard. And Muldoon called foul a few times, and Whistler told him to piss off. And finally, he pulled Whistler off of this wrestler, and Whistler tried fighting him. He pinned Whistler down with a knee on the neck. They drags him off stage. They got into a fist fight out back where both of their faces got fucked up. And uh, the next day, they were just going back to the tour like nothing happened. It's, uh, you know. So if you ever want to know where, where they got the WrestleMania, what was it, 13 angle with Mike Tyson and Shawn Michaels and Stone Cold, with the referee, with the re dirty referee swerve finish, there you go. It certainly felt that way. That's amazing. Um, 
And like I said, around this time, he was he started formulating and promoting his fitness system. Uh, he gave touring exhibitions while he was traveling for wrestling, and he would market it to wealthy men because uh, you know those are the people who will pay you the best. I don't know if anybody knew that. Uh, so he would show off these feats of strength and agility. Uh, he was quoted in a lecture that fat and corpulent men can be reduced to normal weight and size with perfect training quarters furnished to all professional athletes' needs. Quite the, uh, quite, the pitch, quite the pitch, man. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And like I said, it was so rare even today for athletes to think this far ahead where he is, you know, the world champ. He's on top of the world. Right. He's in his early 30s. But he's already going like, you know what? This isn't going to last forever. I got to be smart about this. Um, and then, you know, so like I said, it, 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 it really paid off. I keep saying that you'll see show, don't tell, even though I'm saying everything. Um, Moving forward, on uh, June 4th, 1883, he defended his title against the French wrestler uh, Jules Rigal in San Francisco. And once again, he had the size and strength advantage like nobody's business. Uh, Rigal, though a great technical wrestler, was just a little over five feet tall, so he was a whittle guy by today's standards. Muldoon kept throwing Rigal, but uh, Rigal was, you know, was very agile. He would land on his hands and knees almost off of every throw, so it couldn't be a pin, couldn't be a point, um, until... Uh, Muldoon picked him up and took a running slam at the 22-minute mark to secure the uh, first fall. Um, it's brutal. And then, you know, they came back after the 20-minute mark, and it took him another half an hour to secure the uh, second fall. So almost an hour of, of wrestling to beat this smaller guy. So it really shows the skill level you saw internationally from all these different wrestling styles and how they would work it within the rules. And it also shows that they had flippy shit back then too, man. Oh yeah. And you know, and then after that, he took a little time off. He went back to his training camp in Pennsylvania, trying to be a personal trainer, doing all these things. And this was one of the funny little side stories that I found about him where a visiting senator uh, was there with his entourage and he told Muldoon that one of his party was a secret Australian wrestler who planned to take Muldoon down when he wasn't looking to like make a name for himself. <laughs> it was a bad idea. Muldoon was pissed. Oh, so no. he snuck, snuck up on the guy, picked him up and threw him in a, ro in a rose bush. Yes. Turns out the guy wasn't a wrestler. He was an unsuspecting British businessman who was very angry about the whole thing. The senator, uh, Senator McCarthy, had set up the whole thing as a mean-spirited joke. That is called a rib, ladies and gentlemen. Yep, and like the businessman was like threatening to sue. It was a whole thing. Uh, you know, I'd be a little, a little grouchy too if I was in that situation. But that I admire the chutzpah of setting up just some poor bastard to get manhandled by a legit world champion. Yeah, that senator is like. So let's talk about my, let's talk about my commission, sir. That is hilarious. And here we are in November 1883. Uh, once again, another big fight against Clarence Whistler. The men met for $2,000. Think about $2,000 in 1883 money and 100% of the gate. So they got the guarantee and the gate. Yep, they got a th they got a two thousand uh, dollar you know payday plus a hundred percent of ticket sales. That is it, that's a fortune. Well, well, I just want to know what the bar did that night. <laughs> <laughs> clearly, the venue the venue uh, knew what it was doing. That is that is quite a booking. I, I who was their agent, man? I need to I need to redo my deal. Exactly. The Sacramento Bee published an article showing doubts in Muldoon, who had been, as they put it, posing instead of training. So he'd been doing all these theater shows, uh, you know, training people. It didn't seem like he was 100% dedicated to wrestling, so there was starting to have a, a little bit of doubt. However, the match was, as you'd expect, bru brutal and grueling. Whistler nearly took the first fall, but Muldoon rolled off the platform and Whistler along with him, and they started fighting in the crowd, legitimately, like, still trying to like fucking beat each other's asses in the crowd, uh, taking cheap shots, striking wasn't always allowed in Greco-Roman, but you know, if nobody's looking, sometimes you do it. Um, and the referee had to break it up, get them back on the, uh, on the platform. Whistler kept trying for throws, but Muldoon would sandbag him. And eventually during an attempt to throw, landed on top of Whistler, shoulders were on the canvas. It's a pin at the 48 minute mark. So they've already one fall have fought for 48 minutes. Two guys that are like the absolute total embodiment of a, of, a, of a vicious rivalry. Yeah. In the second frame, Whistler came out aggressively and nearly pinned him several times. It was just an absolute scramble, lots of mat base, just back and forth. And in 42 minute mark, he pinned Muldoon. Muldoon hadn't lost a legitimate round in 
forever. The crowd went bananas to see that happen. I can't even imagine how much money changed hands and bets yeah. going towards Whistler's uh, direction off of that. Uh, but Muldoon came out a little on the grouchy side. Little, you don't, you a, don't say. A I little mean, on the grouchy side after giving up a, a pin. Um, so, question on that. Did Whistler, because the last time we talked about the fall that he scored as the second fall when he, when he put him on his head, and then he came out and played with his food, did he adjust the strategy this time? It got a little wild. Um, so, pretty much right out of the gate, he picked Whistler up, like, over his head, like, legit, pretty much gorilla press, and slammed his opponent so hard that uh, Whistler's shoulder blade was broken. Do you know how weird you have to fall to break oh. your shoulder blade? I mean, that's a, that's a yes, weird twist right there. unfortunately I do. That is a brutal-looking injury. So the, oh my gosh. Yeah, so he, you know, he's, he's fucked up beyond belief. There is no room for a third fall now, and the officials decide to call it a draw instead of a win in Muldoon's wow. uh, favor. And Muldoon was not happy about it. He said, I, you know, he's the one who forfeited, I should have won, so on and so forth. But the crowd really turned against him on that. It was a bit of an unintentional heel turn, as we say in the old wrestling business. Wow. So the crowd was booing him because, you know, he just brutally hurt this man and then is complaining because, you know, he wasn't declared winner. And in the end, he ended up giving half the money to Whistler because he was horrifically injured. It wasn't going to be able to compete or do anything for many, many months. You think about how long a broken shoulder takes to heal with modern medicine. Imagine what that was like in the late 1800s. So he gave him half the money and publicly stated that, you know, Whistler was the toughest man he ever wrestled. He put this guy over whether, I mean, it was definitely true. And maybe he did it just to kind of get the public back on his side after being a bit of a shit about it. And unfortunately, they never met again. Whistler went on a tour in Australia and at the age of 29 died of alcohol alcoholism related pneumonia. Ugh. But... You know, that's that's a sad story. We'll go more into detail on that someday when we talk about Clarence Whistler. Um, at that point in his career, Muldoon was so dominant. It, 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 like the best way to compare, compare it is to talk about Mike Tyson in his heyday, where nobody expected much out of his opponents other than to be punched a bunch and fall down quickly. Yeah, I mean, it, you're, you're talking about the dominant alpha of his, you know, his sport in, in that time. I mean... He, he ended the career of his greatest rival in dominant fashion. That's about as spectacular of a victory as you can achieve. Yeah, so it was, you know, I don't know if it was really hard to sell tickets to see him because he was still a huge attraction, but they started trying to spice it up a bit. In 1884, he faced Fred Bauer, no relation to the former Greco-Roman champion in Los Angeles, and this, they had to put a stipulation. His stipulation that if he didn't throw Bauer 10 times in an hour, he would be considered the loser. He would forfeit the match and say, this man won by default. And Bauer was a lot heavier than Muldoon, but not in muscle weight. He was a little bit of a, a flabby boy. And Muldoon uh, pinned him twice in the first minute. <laughs> well, I mean, sometimes you got to gimmick up the match if you can't get it, get him a proper opponent, you know? Yeah, and he, and he at the one point, he was dominating uh, Bauer so much, he was, like, putting him in holds and started giving the audience lectures about the benefits of his exercise and diet system. <laughs> so he's got this guy, like, in a, in a Nelson, like, telling the crowd, like, everybody should come train my way if you have the dollars because you, too, can be a big muscle-bound weirdo. <laughs> well, some poor asshole is, like, have, is like fighting for his life against this guy. It's like, it's like a distraction. It's, you know, I can't imagine the level of humiliation. Um, oh, I'd be pissed. And, uh, <laughs> I'd be pissed. And the referee ended up calling the match off after Muldoon threw him a, a sixth time and Bauer hit his head and was dazed and was pretty much out on his feet. And then we had similar situations with uh, that summer. He faced off against Japanese wrestler uh, Matsuda Sorokichi in Chicago. And it was, once again, one-sided affair. Not much to write about. Completely steamrolled him in a uh, three out of fives match. Um, same thing with J.H. McMullen, um, where he would, you know, started doing things where each match, each round would be a different stipulation. Greco-Roman won, yeah. catch his catch can, blah, 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 blah. And all at the same time, he was still, in, as of 1885, also touring with theater groups, doing exhibitions, dressing like a gladiator, being in plays. And then he comes back and has a rematch against uh, Matsuda Sorokichi uh, with a stipulation that they had to throw uh, Sorokichi five times in an hour to win. Sorokichi wasn't a big guy. 
He was, uh, you know, he was a smaller Japanese wrestler, a little over 500 or five feet, muscular at 180. Um, and Muldoon was showing up looking not great. I don't know if he was ill, injured, or just had been too busy being showbiz boy to train properly. Um, but he couldn't even get a pin within the first half hour. Uh, managed to get a half Nelson turn to get a guy's shoulders on the on the old canvas. But at no point would and would anyone say that Sorakashi had Muldoon in trouble. But Muldoon wasn't dominating. He wasn't the unstoppable force that he had been for years up to this point. And in fact, the time limit ran out. And according to that stipulation, Muldoon had to forfeit the match and the purse. So all that money off the table. Didn't, it wasn't a title match because of the forfeit, but all the money went to his opponent that you know maybe a year ago he would have completely steamrolled the guy. Um, so we're kind of starting to see that point in a champion's career where things are starting to go downhill a little bit. Uh, how downhill uh, are things going to go? Will he rebound? What's going to happen when he goes into a partnership with legendary boxing champion John L. Sullivan? Well, I guess we're going to have to find out next time because we're running a little short on time. And stay tuned, I guess, in uh, two weeks for episode two of The Solid Man, William Muldoon. Thank you, Chago, for being here, man. We're having fun. Oh, this is capital, capital. And that was a capital uh, tease, as they say in the old biz. Yes, find out if Muldoon is able to... to regain his uh, championship form or and, and it would meet his proverbial clever lang or if he gives in to the montage at rocky three in the beginning and that's our discussion on the solid man and i think that extra was pretty solid man oh <laughs>